last day of 2022. It is Saturday, which means we have a brand spanking new issue of Airmail for your enjoyment and perusal. And we have two editors and many more here to talk about it. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are here in New York City. We've got tinsel in our hair and champagne on our lips, and we are ready to talk about all the good things in life, Michael. Let's do it. Let's do it. As I say, I know you guys all want to get out the door and go make your holiday plans. I'll let you know we've got a lot of fun and joie here. We have a terrific program today. You've heard the phrase, new year, new you. Well, Max Berlinger will join us from Los Angeles for a story we might call new year, new hair, specifically how men are traveling in droves to Turkey to get hair transplants. Why Turkey? Well, Max has the answers. Then we ask, is Paris shivering? Well, Alexander Marshall will join us from France to report on what life is like there now that major energy cuts have taken effect. And finally, if you're looking for a way to stay warm, at least for a little bit, acclaimed film director, writer, and all-around man of style, Paul Feig. The man behind Bridesmaids and Freaks and Geeks stops by to talk about how he has also become a master mixologist. Cheers to that. Ashley, where do you think we should begin? You know what I love about Max Berlinger's story? It's that men are just as vain as the rest of us, and he has figured out where specifically there is vain, and it is on their scalps. Max is a wonderful journalist. He's written style-centric copy for all sorts of great outlets, Esquire, The New York Times, and now Airmail. We're so happy to have him here. Welcome, Max. Max, we thank you and your follicles so much for joining us. Oh my God, thank you for having me. Okay, Max, this is one of the weirdest stories I've read in a long time, and I'm afraid I'm never going to be able to get the image of bloody bandaged scalps at the Istanbul airport out of my mind. Tell us what is happening with this weird yet true industry of Turkish hair transplants. Essentially in Turkey, the hair transplant industry is thriving and it's much cheaper than it's, I think, a fraction of the cost, about a quarter of the cost of what you can get in America. And it's very, very high tech. It's very, very developed there. So men have been all in with accommodation and flights are flying there, having a little vacation, getting their hair, their scalps resurfaced, and then coming back for, yeah, about a quarter of the price of what you could get in America. These gentlemen during COVID have sort of taken the opportunity to sort of disappear and come back. And when you're back in the office, suddenly your hairline looks a little more robust. That bald spot is magically gone. And they've been sort of leaning into Max, when you say transplant, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, there's different types of transplants, but the interesting thing about Turkey is that because the industry is so robust, there's lots of doctors involved. And so that sort of propels the industry forward and propels people to sort of have the highest technology available. But there is a type, it's called FUE, follicular unit extraction, which very sexy. Where you do have hair, they'll pull out some, like a little strap of skin, and then they'll sort of go in pour by pour. Before, I think you would sort of get this sort of fake looking rug look, and this is much more natural. But it is essentially the procedure is you go in pour by pour. So they're going in one after another, after another, after another. And these procedures, depending on how much you're doing, can be hours and hours long of just sort of like threading in each individual follicle. But the end result is, is that it looks really natural. It looks like you sort of have a natural head of hair. Now, this is not just a Turkish thing, Max. It's happening all over the world. But in the States, 
from your reporting, it suggests that this procedure costs around $15,000. It's considerably less expensive in Turkey. Tell us a little bit about how this particular type of tourism is packaged and sold to consumers coming into Turkey from overseas. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of those things where it costs, talking to a couple of guys, it's around three to $5,000 all in. And a lot of these places now will have a full package deal where everything is sort of taken care of for you. The flight is like sort of the one thing that's sometimes taken care of. But a lot of times it's from the second you touch down, you have car service to and from a luxury air or a luxury hotel. You'll have meals. You'll have sort of a room at this hotel. You'll have transport to and from the hospital for the procedure. And the procedure is usually like a two to three day thing at the shortest. So you'll go in and sort of have an initial consultation and then you'll have the day of the procedure. And then the day after you'll sort of do a quick checkup. From some of the guys I've spoken with, that's sort of the quickest in out that you could do is like probably a three day sort of thing. But again, a lot of these guys are going because essentially you shave your head, you do this procedure and it's the hair grow grows back. So it's weeks. So it can be weeks for the sort of end result to take hold. So some of these guys are tacking on a week's vacation. You're in Istanbul, which is the gateway between the East and West. It's one of the most culturally rich cities in the world. So I think that the Turkish people are shrewdly making medical tourism. They're helping to sort of build out their traditional tourism business. So when you talk about the reforestation of one's scalp, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's much more improved than those 1980s photographs of Joe Biden where you could literally <laughs> right. see like the rose. Maybe we we should send Joe Biden there. I'm <laughs> right. not sure. But you're saying that part of the attraction here is because the look is not so able to be recognized now, right? Yeah. And even one of the guys I spoke to, Levi, said he went in and he had sort of a bald spot in the back. And that was what he went in for. And when he got to the doctor's office on that first day of the consultation, they sort of were like, well, look, like you've got this widow's peak. We've got some receding hairline over at the temple. Why don't we just fill that in while we're here? Like you're here. You've gone on this flight for 17 hours or whatever. And he totally did it and is super happy that they even said that. And I think that people are surprised by the technology that they have access to, essentially, that there's it's not just like this sort of cut and paste job that it used to be. It's actually quite detailed and quite savvy the way they sort of fill things in. We're not looking with carpet scraps where you're trying to fill out the closet. No. Now I just stare at my hairline and I think you had said you're like, oh, you don't need it. Now I'm like, but if I ever did, I would be happy to go there. That's the thing when you sort of brought it to me. The thing I loved the most is you said it's a story about male vanity, which is endlessly fascinating. And, but I would, guys were like ghosting me and it was weird. Like guys would post like things from their surgery on their Instagram. And then I would DM them and they would like not respond. So it's an interesting thing, like the weird idea of like, they are proud of it, but they want to control the narrative. Maybe a couple of guys sort of, I found online who lived in New York or Los Angeles or Chicago who had done it and seemingly were very open about it. And yet they didn't want to talk to me about it. And so it was kind of hard to track down guys who were open to talking to me. Even there was a third guy who we, I changed his name. It's a friend of a friend. And he sort of like went on the record fine. And then a day or two after we had spoken, he said, it's fine if you use what I said, but I actually would love it if you just didn't use my name. And he said he's been slowly telling his friends and family, it's like enough of a change that people have sort of been obliquely referencing his hair. But I found it interesting the way men sort of want to own the narrative or sort of dipping their toe into this sort of area of self-care or grooming and experimenting with how comfortable they are with telling everybody like the different layers of secrecy. Your family gets one layer, your friends get another layer, and a random reporter who's in your DMs gets like the least maybe. But then the guys who did talk about it, Brett being like one of them, was 
like so proud of it and was like, I told all my friends, all my friends have gone. He went in the fall of 2020, so early on in the pandemic. And I think I found that interesting. He was like, I won't shut up about it. I told everybody this is life-changing. I said at the end of our conversation, I'd love to use your full name and sort of say what your work and where you live. And he's like, I'd love it. I'd be so proud. I'd be, like I've been such a champion of this. So then there's that end of the spectrum. And I think somebody, I forget who said, Kardashians have sort of made changing their looks physically through cosmetic surgery, like part of their brand. Like we're in a different part of our cultural understanding of cosmetic surgery. I think it used to be this sort of this thing that you didn't talk about. And now it's weirdly like, it's sort of like getting a facial or getting your eyebrows waxed. It's like sort of just good grooming now. And I think men are sort of maybe gently dipping their toe into that area of it. All right. Well, Max, now that you've spurred us both to action, Michael, I guess it's time that I scheduled that facelift. <laughs> Max, can you figure out where I can get that done for less than $15,000? Okay. Because if so, then I'm interested. Right, right. Max, thank you so much. I love this story. I love the sense of humor that you brought to it. And I also like to see you guys getting all angsty over your hairline. Like, <laughs> kind of sweet for us women who have been suffering from all this stuff forever. Right. Why do girls get to have all the fun? That's how I like to think of it. <laughs> On that note, gentlemen, off to get my book out. <laughs> right. <laughs> have a happy holiday, Max. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much for asking me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Max. Great story. Thank you. Have a great day. For the record, Michael Haney does not need a hair transplant. He has got luscious locks galore. So just in case anyone was curious as to whether this was a self-motivated assignment on your part, Michael, no, it is strictly journalistic inquiry. You're very kind. Very kind. Me, on the other hand, sign me up. You have luscious locks, long luscious locks, and you know what that's good for in winter? Keeping you warm. Especially if you're in a place like Paris, which seems to be, as we said in our introduction, the question is not is Paris burning, it's is Paris shivering, right? Yeah, it turns out like life is not cheery in Paris or it's not as cheery as it should be because the French always do manage to find something to complain about. And we say that lovingly. Alexander Marshall, one of our fabulous writers at large, is here to tell us all about the French energy crisis or the internal psychological crisis that it has provoked in many French people. Welcome, Alex. Okay, Alex, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, you guys. Okay, your story takes us into the energy crisis in France, which of course feels like more of a crisis than anywhere else in Europe is experiencing. Why is the situation so <laughs> pronounced there? And why are people going insane? French people are amazing complainers. So, and I love this about them, actually. Don't take this as an insult. So that when they tend to wave their hands, people just notice more. But actually, the situation is really bad in France because France is normally an electricity exporter. We generate, I'm going to say we, since I've lived in France for 16 years now, we generate our electricity here through nuclear power plants over half of it. And coincidentally, over half of those have until very recently been offline for maintenance and the kinds of things that we really want people to do so that we don't have meltdowns and burn the entire country to a crisp. But it makes for a problem when we also now have a gas crisis, so we can't pick up the slack by burning fossil fuels to create more electricity. Okay, the French government has been issuing rather stern warnings to its citoyens, telling people they need to cut electricity usage or else rolling blackouts are happening. Is that really a likely possibility? Yeah, it's totally a likely possibility. I mean, okay, these are warnings. These are worst case scenario warnings. 
granted in France, there is a long tradition of incredibly rosy wish casting when it comes to talking to the public, normally on terms of economic forecasting. And so the French public tend to listen to government promises with a slightly jaundiced ear. Sorry for the metaphor. <laughs> so anyway, there have been warnings going out since in November, even sooner. The government's been preparing for it even sooner because obviously the war in Ukraine has been going on since February. The nuclear problem has been happening. So, But the word really got out in November. And then the prime minister distributed a sort of emergency plan of action, worst case scenario, to various police prefectures. That was a confidential report, which then suddenly cue all the rumors and all the conspiracy mongering and whatnot. So people sort of lost their minds. And the scenarios were scary. It was like, okay, we're going to have rolling blackouts two hours at a time, either in the morning or in between 6 and 8 p.m. when usage is the heaviest. And they'll be decided on based on the actual state of the grid. So areas in the country that are just overtaxed will be the first ones, obviously, to go down for a few hours. But the catastrophic scenarios were like, okay, but so suddenly traffic lights won't work anymore and elevators won't work. And cell phone towers, obviously internet, everything, kaput, blackout. Blackout means blackout, which means total chaos. One hilarious person on Twitter was like, will this affect store alarms? Asking for a friend. So <laughs> there's been some returning to earth since these panicky, fear-mongering sort of conversations have spilled out onto social media, first and foremost by Macron, who got really annoyed with all of the catastrophizing and basically just called an impromptu press conference outside of a Balkan summit to tell everybody to just to shut it down. But the rollout of these measures has not been handled well. There is a public-private energy company in France called Enedis, which handles, which has basically been tasked to be the face of this crisis, since they're the people who actually handled the grid, and they're the best ones to do it, but they're maybe not the greatest in PR. Their head flack did the tour of the news last week and mentioned that people who are, for instance, confined at home on respirators, not in hospitals, but, you know, outpatients who need respirators to survive, will not be considered a priority in case of a rolling blackout. So awesome. At the same time, the mayors, Association of Mayors of Towns with Ski Resorts, proudly announced that service will run just fine with, you know, maybe the occasional slowdown, maybe a little less floodlit night skiing in certain areas. So one thing I love about the French is that they're very conscious of who's winning and who's losing in the game of social favors and handouts. And so it's made a lot of noise. People are like, how can Courchevel be up and running when, you know, my grandfather might have to be whisked off to a hospital if his respirator putters out. So anyway, this is why Macron had to jump in and kind of tell everyone, hoo, 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 calm down, everybody, calm down. These are just worst case scenarios and we're all going to pull together. We're going to make it happen. We're going to cut our power. We're a big country and we're going to hold it together. And in fact, recent news, like very recent announcement that year over year, we are down 10% in electricity consumption. So last November, we were using 10% more electricity than we were using this November. So we are on track to reduce significantly. So we might even avoid all this drama. Alex, enough about French people. I'm here as an American. I kind of enjoy seeing the Californication of France and rolling blackouts and things like that. But I think I speak for a sizable majority of the listeners here who are like, hey, I'm going to be in Paris this Christmas or over the New Year's. Is my elevator going to run? Is there going to be candles in my hotel room? Are the restaurants going to be open? What can I expect? Should I bring a flashlight? What should we know? Well, it's hard to say because, again, this is all dependent on how people react now. 
So people are doing the necessary. I'm running around torturing my visiting family in my house, turning off lights like a mad person. So, so the better people respond now, the less, the less likely this is to happen. However, it doesn't matter whether you're in a hotel, if you're not in a hospital, a police station, or a fire station, or happen to be on the grid connected to one of those lines, then if you have a rolling blackout, you have a rolling blackout. So two hours, no elevator, no nothing, which means if you're in a hotel, the key card won't work. So it could get a little dicey. But for the moment, for instance, the Christmas lights in my village are on full force. It could get a little romantic. More candle Candlelight dinners. More candlelight dinners. Exactly. No, I mean, hotels will obviously have to warn their visitors in case this looks like it's going to happen. Also, people will get at least two days advance notice. So if we have to have two hours of a blackout in the middle of Paris at the Ritz, they'll be able to warn you well in advance so that you can take the stairs or... Alex, there's one good thing to come out of all of this, which is that Macron has brought back the turtleneck. Are you guys really dressing for the outdoors indoors? I mean, or is this just another example of the French absurdity we know and love? Well, Macron certainly doesn't need to worry about being cold wherever he is. I mean, come on, the president is not going to be freezing his hiney off in the middle of doing state business. But I think it was kind of the all for one, one for all Jimmy Carter and the cardigan back in the 70s in the White House talking about how we all have to do our part. That was kind of the same thing, except for with like a chicer look because he's Macron. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. It's a great story. And thank you. We're sorry that you're cold, but our hearts are warm with love for you. <laughs> thank you. I hope you guys have a great holiday and we'll be speaking soon. A bientôt. Michael, I think she looks good in that down robe. I think you might need to get one of those. <laughs> Okay, maybe put it on the Christmas list for next year. Why not? All right, we've got another treat in store. We have one of our favorite Hollywood directors here. His name is Paul Feig. He's done some of your favorite movies. He directed Bridesmaids, which is the only thing in the world that can reliably make me laugh. He's also directed Freaks and Geeks, which was one of my favorite shows in the 90s. It is still a cult favorite today. What else has he done, Michael? He did the all-female remake of Ghostbusters. But most of all, I think he put his pandemic time to good use. He started a little project on Instagram, 100 Cocktails Over 100 Days, to raise money for charities, right? which sort of spun out into this book he's here to discuss, right? This guy loves a cocktail. I see him around London at parties and he always is dressed to the nines, like the most dapper bespoke suit you've ever seen. And he's always holding or mixing a perfectly balanced cocktail. In other words, he's an icon and we're so happy to have him here. We're delighted this week to have Paul Feig, who's here to talk about Cocktail Time, the ultimate guide to grown-up fun, his new book, which is out now and perfect for the holidays. And by holidays, I mean Christmas and New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and the rest of 2023. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Michael. It's so good to see you again. I think the last time I saw you was on a plane leaving Positano. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on your way to somewhere glamorous, you and your wife were behind me and my wife on the plane. Exactly. We're world travelers, jet setters, if you will. Yes. And every time I'm in Charvet, Anne-Marie says, have you seen Paul lately? So I haven't, <laughs> but now I can tell her. Oh, good. Excellent. Oh, there I got my one of my many Charvet flowers on right now. And boutonnieres, I guess you call it. And you are the best dressed guest we've ever had on Morning Meeting. So, Paul, this is the New Year's Eve episode. Let's just get right to it. What is... The drink of choice that you would recommend for everyone that is a crowd pleaser as well as going to please their own taste buds. Well, I'm very prejudiced when it comes to this, Michael. There's so many good cocktails in the world. My book has 125 of them, but I'm always going to default to a martini because that to me is the perfect drink. It's celebratory. It's grown up. 
It's got a grown-up taste to it, but it also unlocks lots of fun, if you will. It's not too sweet. It shouldn't be sweet at all, unless you make it completely wrong. And I just think it comes in the most beautiful glass ever designed in the history of glassdom. Glassdom? Is that it? Sure. And I just think a party where everybody's standing around holding martini glasses is a wonderful celebratory event. And we think that you might have a special preference in terms of what gin you drink. Excuse me, my friend. Always gin. <laughs> There's no such thing as a vodka martini. Actually, no, there is such a thing as a vodka martini, but if you just say martini, it must be gin. First of all, I do make my own gin. I have my own gin brand called Artingstall's Brilliant London Dry Gin that is available. Go to artingstallsgin.com to find out where to get it. It has to be very, very dry and very, very cold. So there's two ways to make it. One is the Duke's Martini way, which is a Duke's bar in the Duke's Hotel in London where Ian Fleming discovered the martini. And there they freeze everything. So you get a frozen glass, frozen bottle of gin. They put a little vermouth in, swirl it around to just kind of coat the glass, dump it out on the floor. Alessandro Palazzi does. That's his signature move. Then they just pour in this very viscous, ice-cold gin. And they do serve Artingstall's gin there. (laughs) And then he has an Amalfi lemon, and he cuts a very long twist. I mean, because those Amalfi lemons are big, and he'll cut it pole to pole. So you get it like a good two to three inch long uh, twist and just express it over the top. Get the oil on there and then kind of coat the lip of the glass with the twist and then drop it in and you have a beautiful ice cold but very very strong martini so i kind of recommend doing a stirred martini which is you get a great mixing glass and you put the ice in you put a literally a drop of dry vermouth i prefer dolan and then you put in a good three to four ounces of gin and you stir it for a good two to three minutes. Some people think that adds too much delusion, but I'd rather have a little more delusion and have it ice cold. Then you take a glass that's been frozen and the freezer. Unless you don't have one in there, make sure you put ice into the glass before you start making the martini and some water and then let it get cold and frosty and dump that out. And then just pour in this beautiful martini out of your mixing glass into the glass. Uh, Again, big twist over the top and enjoy. Paul, who are your favorite people? So much of the holidays, I guess you can drink alone, but it's much more fun to do it with others. And you're famous for hosting. Who are your favorite people to make martinis for? Well, people who appreciate them <laughs> and who really enjoy what I enjoy, which is kind of what I call grown-up fun, which is any kind of gathering of people who are like-minded in their outlook on life and on what sort of makes life fun and also who are ambitious and enjoy their work and like to work. And then a very diverse group of people. My favorite kind of cocktail parties are where it's just a bunch of different careers and professionals and people from all over the place expertly curated by a great host who knows that these people will all get along or they will all be interested in each other's careers and lives. My good friend Kathy Lett in London, who is a Australian comedy novelist, and she's great, but she puts together these amazing parties where you'll be a politician and a scientist and an artist and a dancer and a, I mean, every walk of life. And the fact that we all know that they're friends of Kathy's and been vetted by her, that then you go, okay, they're, so you don't never worry, like, who's this person? They've all been vetted. And those are the people I love to make martinis for, because generally it just gets the conversations going, is the social lubricant, if you will, a social event. And you get shy in those situations. And so after martini, I'm much more able to go up to somebody I don't know and go, hey, I'm Paul Fee, friend of Kathy's, what do you do? And then you're off to the races. Paul, one of the things, your book is loaded with such beautiful memories of hotel bars and the role they play in you discovering drinks of choice and the beautiful drinking culture. Top three hotel bars for hotel memories of where you've discovered and enjoyed drinks? 
Yeah. Well, Dukes is always at the top. I mean, I discovered that in like the mid 90s. And it's pretty much right when Alessandro Palazzi started working there, too. So I feel like he's one of my best friends in the world. And I feel like we bonded over that. Actually, the, well, the first martini I ever had was at the Savoy hotel, but in a bar that doesn't exist there anymore. It wasn't the bar American or the American bar. It used to be, they have the grill room and it was right outside of the grill room in the lobby. There was a bar and I had never had a martini before and was knew I had to kind of like gin because I'd read that, you know, real martini is a gin martini and had had bad experiences with gin as a younger person. But went up to the bartender and said, like, I would like your signature martini. And he served it. It was ice cold in this thistle glass, kind of thistle shaped glass. And it was absolutely stunning. So I will always be grateful to that one. And I'm always sad when I walk in the Savoy and that actual bar isn't there anymore. So that's number two. And then, I mean, it's corny to say it because it's everybody says it's the best bar in the world but the Connaught the bar the back bar in the Connaught is just wonderful the attention to detail and you feel very special when you're in there Paul you're one of the funniest humans on the planet you're also one of the funniest and best filmmakers directors we love I want to know do you drink martinis when you are working on a movie like Bridesmaids Ghostbusters like do you work sober do you work with a little bit what are your alcohol habits (laughs) around your work I'd love to know there you go I start the day with two martinis and then I go to no of course not if only you always hear those old stories of Hollywood where like after lunch everybody was just drunk. I don't see how you could possibly work that way because I just get tired now if I drink too much. My whole life when I work is about getting to a martini at the end of the day. That's the reward. And what we do is we shoot what's called French hours on my movies, which normal hours on a movie is 12 hours with a one hour lunch in the middle. And then that allows you to go into overtime. And a lot of times they go, TV will shoot for 13 to 16 hours a day. So nobody has a life whatsoever. But with French hours, 10 hours, no lunch. Food is constantly being passed around. You can graze and eat all day. But at the end of 10 hours, you pull the plug and that's it. And everybody goes home. And so you're allowed to go and have dinner with your family and you go and have a martini and you can actually get a full night's sleep and not be bleary-eyed and miserable in the morning. So yes, I'm always on the quest to get to the martini. In showbiz, the very last shot that you do on a set is called the martini shot. So come down to the thing. The penultimate one is called the Abbey Singer because there was a famous line producer who for some reason, he just got named for the shot before the last shot. But then you'll always hear like, come up like, is the martini? Yes, this is the martini, everybody. So I love that. I just lucked in to that. <laughs> Paul, your book has 100 recipes for 100 drinks, but I want to ask you about maybe one that's a little more notorious or infamous called the hot pan. <laughs> yes. The self-proclaimed worst drink ever made. <laughs> the hot pants is a hilarious drink because why I put it in the book, because it's absolutely awful, but it was a very big drink in the disco era. It was like famous. <laughs> and All I have to do is tell you the ingredients and you will know why it's terrible. It's tequila and then it is grapefruit juice. That doesn't sound so bad. A modified greyhound, if you will. But then into the mix comes peppermint schnapps and then topped off with one teaspoon of powdered sugar that goes into the drink. And you mix that all up. It's not over yet, my friends. Then you take a glass and you kind of wet the rim and you dip that into margarita salt. So you have a salted rim and you pour that entire mess into that glass and you've got a taste sensation, which my theory is that everybody was so whacked out on cocaine back then in the 70s that this was the only thing that could break through their taste buds and their brain to bring them alive. I think you've made 
Ashley and all of us listening, just thinking like New Year's Eve is here. And the only thing that would make it more perfect is if Paul, like Santa Claus, could go from house to house, but like <laughs> come down your chimney and mix a drink for everyone on New Year's Eve or the perfect martini. I would love that. Yeah, you come clinking down the chimney with glasses in hand and bottles. I want to spread the kids get their gifts, but then I'm there for mom and dad and Santa. Santa has a lot of milk and cookies. So I think if he had a nice martini waiting for him, he'd probably have a much better night. Okay, Paul, we have to ask you one non-alcohol related question. <laughs> okay. Sorry. We could go on all day. On a work front, another side of your work, you had a great film come out in 2022, The School for Good and Evil. What are you working on next? What do we have to look forward to? I have a new movie that I can't announce yet. It's a big action comedy, and it's R-rated, because my last two movies have been more in the PG-13 realm, and if you know my work, most of my movies are R-rated. I find them funnier. You know, It's not like they're filled with sex and nudity. It's just really, I like kind of swearing. <laughs> I find swearing to be very funny, because then it feels very authentic. So I'm going to be living in Atlanta for the first four months of the new year shooting this movie and then got the book out and then the gin out and got a show called Welcome to Flatch which is on Fox which we're hoping we get a third season on we just finished our second season and a show called Minx which was on HBO Max now we're trying to sell it somewhere else because HBO Max has consolidated a lot of things that's a story for another day well Paul that just means we have more excuses to talk to you in the new year which we will relish I look forward to it. This is so much fun. And yeah, I just love talking to you guys. Michael, I'm always happy to see you because we go way back. We'll look for you next time on an airplane somewhere in Positano. I can't wait. Let me get my ticket in a first class seat. I'll be right there. Happy New Year, Paul. Thanks for everything. Love to Lori. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Thank you. Happy New Year. Thanks. You too. Now I'm Thursday and I just want to go hang out and drink martinis with Paul all afternoon. Help. Wait, I can because it's December 31st. Exactly. You should have been mixing it up as you were doing the interview there. How are you so sure that I wasn't? Well, I didn't hear the little stir clinking around, but then again, maybe you had it muffled. No, if I were drinking martinis, you'd know immediately because I'd just start slurring my words within 15 seconds. Like, <laughs> I can't handle all that vodka or gin. Anyway, what a great conversation with Paul. We love him so much. All right. Well, Michael, on that good note, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us before we start hitting the champagne in earnest? I mean, besides a hair transplant in Istanbul? Let me think. Yes, I do have one. It's the end of the year and the beginning of a new year and everyone's busy making resolutions and looking ways to improve yourselves. So I'm going to suggest you give a look at a new documentary of sorts directed by the actor Jonah Hill. It's called Stutz. That's Stutz, S-T-U-T-Z. And it's about a man named Phil Stutz, a Los Angeles-based psychiatrist. He came to prominence about a decade or so ago when his partner in practice, Barry Michaels, and he were profiled in The New Yorker as the, quote, open secret in Hollywood, unquote, who are revered for their ability to work with block screenwriters and other creatives and crack open their potential. They eventually wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Tools, which distilled this practice for writers and others. And now Jonah Hill, who has been, we find out, a patient of Stutz's for years, turns the camera on him and gets him to discuss his life as well as how he came to his insights. It makes for a provocative, I think, thought-inducing viewing. And I think it'll give you something to consider as you move into 2023 and make your own plans and your own resolution. So it's called Stutz and it's on Netflix now. And you, Ashley? I do, Michael. If you are looking for something interesting to read this holiday season, there's a marvelous new book out by Seth Alexander Thevaz called Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. And this takes us back to the 20th and 19th centuries, to the proliferation of gentlemen's clubs, not only throughout 
the UK, but also throughout uh, various other parts of the world that had reciprocal relationships with these clubs. And, uh, you know, clubs get kind of a bad rap these days um, for very good reason. But there's a lot to talk about here historically, and they have played an important part in the social life of London for many years. And this will take you to Boodles, the Groucho Club, uh, and tell you a little bit about the history of these places and why they are so important in the vernacular. So it's a wonderful new book. It's, it's called Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs by Seth Alexander Thevaz, and it is reviewed in the issue this week by John Walsh. Enjoy. Thank you again for joining us. We'll be back here next week with another episode of Morning Meeting. And Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meaning is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meaning. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.